Hello and welcome to another episode of Talent and Titan, a podcast for current and future leaders in the advertising, digital, and design spaces. Talent and Titan is produced by Creative Niche, an innovative staffing, recruitment, and executive search firm located in lovely downtown Toronto. You can find Creative Niche on all social medias at Creative Niche or at their website, creativeniche.com. I am your host, Christian Gilbert. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today on the show, we've got James Griffin speaking with Gassia Malgian. James is the head of design for Thomson Reuters in New York, but before that, he studied music production and engineering at Berkeley. What was initially a side gig that James took on to help chip away at his college debt would eventually become the focus of all of his attention. In this episode, you'll hear Gassia and James discuss the importance of being adaptive, getting your hands dirty, and wanting to work outside of your comfort zone. Coming up right now on Talent and Titan. in 1998 um, with uh, engineering, as you mentioned. Um, and I was really interested in getting into what at the time was e-commerce or internet audio. Um, if you follow anything like Napster um, or you know, Kaza or any of those peer-to-peers, the music industry really wasn't ready for it. So I figured, okay, I can look for studio gigs. And while I do that, I'll just take this side gig over here doing um, webcasting for a financial services firm. And then I started to realize this actually pays more, <laughs> which was really good when you have ridiculously expensive college loans to pay off. So over the years, I got more into the UX side of it, started going on client calls with salespeople, and then eventually wanted to tip my hand into usability testing. And I think the first time I ever watched somebody use something that I designed and had trouble, I almost dropped to the floor and I said, I'd never want to see that again. So I really went hard reading books, uh, going to seminars in the Boston area, and then moved to New York to take on a lead usability role where I could focus on it solely. And it's just been that trajectory ever since. So you've landed at Thomson Reuters, you've been there for a while, and now your role has evolved from being only mobile focused to a much broader focus. Can you tell me a little bit more about your team and the projects that are currently on the go? Sure. I work within the Reuters News Division, and my team somewhat artificially and somewhat just by nature of what they do, is split up into two functions. One is for advertising design, and one is for editorial or product design. We handle the Reuters.com website, any of the mobile apps that we put out, the newsletters that are there. When the Apple News app comes out or Instant Articles or Google app comes out, we address those as well. So, And that covers both the product and the advertising side of it. The advertising side is the new one. That's not something I had done previous to this. And if a agency comes and wants to put a ad at the top of the page or on the side, or they want to do something more interactive, or they want to do some custom content solutions, we work with that client to get it up on Reuters.com. It must be exciting to be able to explore a whole other side of the business with the advertising group you're leading. On the product side, there is so much demand for talent. We see ad designers moving into product roles, UX researchers ramping up design skills. When you're hiring designers, what are your expectations of their skills? Is it an end-to-end designer you want on your team, 
or are visual and UX design siloed within your group? Depending on the role that we needed to fill, you try to find multidisciplinary designers. End-to-end -end could be a little bit hard. Sometimes uh, the budgets don't work with it. Sometimes you can hire a contractor to come in on a project and then you can. For the most part, what I've been looking for is people who have an adaptive skill set, people who have some visual design skills, people who can do some research, people who understand maybe a little bit of coding. Even if you have only two or the three, hugely beneficial. And what we've been able to do is pinpoint people to take leads at certain parts. So for example, if we do usability testing, I have one designer who can actually put together the test script and administer the test, while another colleague is a little stronger at the visual side and she'll take on any of the mock-ups or concepts that we want to pitch. So it sounds like having a diverse skill set or being positioned as a multidisciplinary designer is an advantage versus being hyper-focused in one area. It allows for more fluidity in projects. Hiring managers often overlook candidates with great experience because their work just hasn't been laid out well. What are you looking for when you're reviewing portfolios? So what I'm looking for a lot is often the detail that goes into it. Specifically from a visual design point of view, when you look at the vertical rhythm of text, does it make sense or does it look like someone just put it in Photoshop and didn't adjust any of the settings? How do the margins work? Everything doesn't have to be exactly equal, but I want to see that things make sense in the context that goes. If you have a button that is supposed to be a call to action, such as, you know, submit your name or, you know, send email or click here, does it have the proper call out? Can you see it? Does it fit on the text correctly? How did you do with the cropping of the photos themselves? So designers, in essence, should be treating their portfolios as a sample itself, the way they would any project for a major client. We've talked about hard skills and showcasing design chops, but what about soft skills? There are obvious ones, for example, the ability to communicate and present work succinctly. What are the key attributes you look for in designers? Yeah, attitude you know, depending on what we're doing. So when we started uh, doing some of the stuff with Reuters in the first place, you had apps, newsletters, and sites that were a mixed match of UIs and different teams over the past six to seven years. Nothing matched. And I said, look, this is going to be a long, hard slog. This is what I'm trying to do. This is where we're trying to go. Um, are you interested? And people who would jump at that and think that that's an opportunity are the kinds of people I want on my team. So definitely attitude is one. And then simply adaptability. I know there's a lot of design managers out there who want the unicorn and we all need the unicorn, but really someone who's like interested in how CSS might work, even if they don't write it, that's good enough. To give you an example, my visual designer came to us with a lot of print and some digital skills. She had never really worked on mobile apps before. She had certainly never put together something as big as a mobile website and a desktop website at once. We taught her how to use the inspector in Chrome. Just take a look at how the CSS was written. Um, what she would call baseline is line height here. What she thinks of is text size is font size or font dash size. And you know, little by little, she started tweaking it, playing with it and seeing how it worked just by reverse engineering how they put in those values. Now she's really comfortable rather than mocking up exactly what she wants, just sending over the CSS in an email. That's great, and, and that's also a great point. So I would say that as a hiring manager, to be able to look at somebody that's heavily weighted on the print side and understands digital and giving them a chance and teaching them and giving them the tools to grow is fantastic. But unfortunately, not every organization and hiring manager has the same type of open-mindedness. So for designers that are out there that have come up in print, that do understand digital, that certainly want to make the leap to be able to be completely digitally focused, what are some things that they can do in their own time to be able to prepare themselves to be marketed as a digital designer? 
I guess just try to find projects that you can get your hands dirty on that are all over the map. It's unrealistic to find very many visual designers or, or even UX designers who are used to iOS and Android specific problems. You know, how the resolutions work, what does it look like in portrait and landscape, how does it adapt, responsive design, virtual reality that's upcoming, augmented reality, kiosks. So if you can find projects that start to address some of it, take them on, tackle them. And then you just kind of learn as you go. Always good to start documenting it. When you get to uh, augmented reality, when you get to the Apple Watch, with anything you just did on iOS, translate somewhat. Web versus app, how you design for fonts, how you design graphics, won't always be the same thing, but there are principles that work between them. Discover them, think about it, write it down. And then that's what we've been doing with the different projects that we have. Kudos for your open-mindedness and appreciation for a designer with a print background and giving her the guidance to get ramped up. We've talked about your design team, and I'd love to learn more about your thoughts on the future of this industry. AR, VR, shifts in flat design, material design. Where are we headed? What's the next shift that's looming? A lot of design is going to become contextual. I think there's a lot to take in at the moment. I think there's gonna be more of that to come. I think flat will evolve. In fact, I think a lot of the reason why you've seen things like flat design come about is because we're moving into all of these uh, different mediums. Skeuomorphism doesn't really scale well. It's hard to take, say, a leather background or the picture of an actual phone and make that work as small as it can be on a, a mobile icon and as big as you can imagine on uh, a big 40-inch TV. So for things like flat design and material design, which are vector and scalable, those do resize nicely upwards and downwards. So I think you're going to see more of flat design just evolve into the different mediums that exist. And technology, how is that going to change? Is AR, VR ready to penetrate our everyday lives? Fair question. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but I do think in the next 10 years, you're going to see some real practical applications of it. We recently did a VR project with Samsung. They gave us a bunch of cameras, we went down to the Olympics, we took a lot of photos and videos, and I've been watching them because we've had to put them up on our site, and I'm like, we recorded these the way you would have a traditional camera or, you know, video camera or photo camera. These are different. They're going to require different ways to do input. They're gonna require different things. We just haven't had the time to play with it yet. So it's gonna evolve. I think of it like when you had a PDA, you had the Apple Newton or a Palm Pilot, it was a real cool factor, but it was very niche. Mm -hmm. cell coverage. And you can see it taking a little bit more of a mainstream thing where more people had them, even like Blackberries. An iPhone comes out and it changed everything. Not because I think the iPhone is the great device, but because people held it and said, I get it. And that's when um, they really started to evolve into something new. And I think, you know, VR is going to do that sometime in the next 10 years, just not tomorrow. When I think about AR, VR, the consumerization of technology, it's obvious that there's more emphasis on very well-designed, thought-out interfaces on applications. I think design thinking helps go deeper in that layer. How has design thinking shifted Thomson Reuters? Well, like a lot of big orgs, they care, and we do talk about it, and there are certainly intranet posts about it, but things like that don't just happen overnight. Within Reuters, I found the biggest change that we were able to have is that you have to have a sponsor. You have to have someone who believes in it and someone who will stand by you. And for me, that's been my manager. You know, once you have the sponsor, then you have to have a lot of patience. We're trying to make it so that I don't come off as preachy, that you actually lead through it. So for example, if the sales uh, organization comes and has a problem, we try to work through it. 
What does your peer set do? What are you hearing in the markets? Let's take a look at what people say on the different app stores or just Google for it. Let's just do a little homework first. What are the different solutions we could have? Because we don't want to just copy what everyone else is doing because you don't know if that's right. We've been able to get a lot of traction where design can lead a lot of those uh, conversations simply just by saying, all right, what are we trying to solve? I get it. Let's look at a lot of different options. Let's funnel down to a couple. Let's see what's going to make sense. How fast do you need it? That's going to always matter. Some solutions take like a couple days. Some will take a couple weeks. When do you need it? But, you know, it's very pragmatic, but it can be quite helpful. And you talked about in order to shift an organization and implement a new methodology, you have to be an internal advocate. You have to have patience. Um, when I think about innovation, I think about needing um, buy-in across an organization as well. First of all, when I think of Thomson Reuters and innovation, I think Thomson Reuters releases a yearly uh, state of innovation report and releases a top 100 global innovators list every year, which recognizes some of the world's most innovative organizations. I guess it would be self-serving to put yourselves on top of that list. <laughs> You've also invested in developing ideas like the Thomson Reuters Lab. So innovation um, must be at the core of everything that your organization does. And I imagine that's done through deliberate efforts and deliberate processes. How do you foster a culture of innovation? And what is your advice for maintaining a culture of innovation? Uh, within the bigger organization, within Thomson Reuters, they're very good at supporting idea labs, uh, for lack of a better term, and I apologize because I can't quite remember what it's called. They have just an online site that says, you know, submit an idea. That's, it's like a pitch proposal. It's if you were going into um, like a startup with a, a venture capital firm. We're working with uh, one of my colleagues over here who's in the business development group. He just had an idea. He wanted to try some stuff out. I gave him a couple wireframes to help visualize. My manager gave him who was also his manager, gave him a little bit of money to get up, go outside and get a visual designer to make high-res mocks. And then it was his job to put it into a PowerPoint and make a pitch out of it. He was one of the few ideas across the company that were selected. So they now are going to give him uh, a little bit of budget to go maintain that idea even more. Would you say then that innovation is part of every Thomson Reuters employee's mandate? I don't know if it's a mandate. Having talked to several of the employees, it's something that everybody wants to be a part of. And as a manager, it's up to us to try to find that time. You know, the, the reality is not every project we're going to tackle is going to be innovative. Sometimes you just have to get something done. But if I'm managing it correctly, I do try to find the time to say, all right, this task we do with the apps or this portion of the site doesn't have a lot of traffic. What can we do differently? Uh, we do have those opportunities. Um, well, thank you so much for all of your insights today. I really appreciate and that concludes today's episode of Talent and Titan. I'd like to once again thank James for taking the time to speak with us and sharing his insight. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe to our show on iTunes or at talentandtitan.simplecast.fm. For all updates related to our show, you can follow us on all social medias at Talent and Titan. While you're there, make sure to do the same for our sponsor, Creative Niche. If you'd like to hear more from James, check him out on Twitter at jagriffin7 or on Instagram at Santiago Griffin. I'm your host, Christian Gilbert. Thank you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you didn't, make sure to let me know. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.